The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, which is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, Exodus 21, page 62, if you're using the Pew Bible. This morning is more of a topical sermon than expositional as we consider God's concern for the unborn, but our text is verses 22 through 25 then of Exodus chapter 21. So let's worship the Lord by listening very carefully to this, the public reading of his word. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Amen. Thus ends, thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing. Our gracious, kind, our loving Heavenly Father, how we praise you again for your word, and we thank you that we can look to it again this morning. Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would work by your spirit and turn our hearts wholly unto yourself. Grant, O Lord, that uh, we might indeed hear and believe and obey all that you would teach us this morning as once again we find that life to which you've called us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in July of 2022, so less than a year ago now, there was an article which is written, it was published by folks who describe themselves as a nonprofit independent news organization dedicated to unlocking the knowledge of experts for the public good. Well, in the Ethics Plus Religion section of this publication was an article written by a professor of biblical and theological studies out in California. The article was entitled, What the Bible Actually Says About Abortion May Surprise You. So what was this uh, this this expert biblical knowledge unlocked for our good, the good of the public. What, what, what is it, according to this professor, that the Bible actually does say about the subject of abortion? The answer is nothing. Zilch. The author argued that Christians try to appeal to the Bible in arguing the abortion issue, but, to quote this article, here's the problem. This 2,000-year-old text says nothing about abortion. End quote. That 2,000-year-old figure says something about this author's view of the Bible. But think about that amazing claim. If that's correct, we sure are making a big fuss about nothing this morning and indeed this week. 
Now, in, in truth, this argument that the, the Bible does not speak to the subject of abortion is not so new. In fact, it was even being made within our own denomination over 50 years ago when our General Assembly was considering whether to erect a committee to study the subject, the issue of abortion. Those were the, those were, there were those arguing, the Bible does not explicitly speak to the matter of abortion, and therefore we, the church, should not speak to this subject I'm very thankful, and I think most of you probably are as well, that such was not the, the majority opinion, and they, they did decide to take a stand on this issue. They did so rightly, because I believe if we have ears to hear, the Bible is very clear about how God would have us view the unborn, very clear about this subject of abortion. God is very much concerned about how we regard human life in the womb, and our, our message this morning is simply this is simply this. God is concerned about human life in the womb, and he calls us, likewise, to be concerned. I'll unpack that message through three points this morning. First, we'll see that human life in the womb is a person created in God's image. Second, it is a person whose whose life is particularly vulnerable, which only heightens God's concern for that person's protection. And then lastly, as God's people then, he calls us to show, I'll say, Christ-centered concern about the life of the unborn. First point then, a human life in the womb is a person created in the image of God. We're beginning with our Exodus 21 text, and we'll expand and look at other texts as well, but some of you may recall that I promised when preaching through... uh, this entire chapter some weeks back for evening worship, I promise we'd look more, more closely at this particular text. You know, it is true that we do not find anywhere in the Bible the words, thou shalt not commit abortion, right? But neither do we find the words, thou shalt not slash thy pastor's tires if he preaches a bad sermon, right? I think we'd all agree the principles are clearly there in the Bible. Don't get any ideas if you were this morning. The point is we're, we're, we're called to do more than simply quote what the Bible says explicitly, right? We're to, we're to apply the scriptures. We're to show the way the scriptures apply to all kinds of areas, indeed every area of life. And this is a text which, which speaks so clearly to the issue of abortion. In fact, we find that there are those on both sides of the abortion debate who appeal to this very text. It's ironic that very article I've referenced already, on the one hand, was making this claim that the Bible is is completely silent about the subject of abortion, but then the author turned around and appealed to this very text to defend and justify abortion. She makes the claim, quote, Exodus 21 suggests that a pregnant woman's life is more valuable than the fetus's. So what do we say about that this morning? Look at verse 22 of our text. Read it again. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Now, those who uh, appeal to this text to defend, to justify abortion, assume that what this is describing is a miscarriage. That is, it's a, it's a stillborn child 
which comes out. And so the argument goes, to quote this article, a monetary fine is imposed if the woman suffers no other harm beyond the miscarriage. However, if the woman suffers additional harm, the perpetrator's punishment is to suffer reciprocal harm up to life for life, end quote. And so you can see as this this, uh, pro-abortion interpretation goes, clearly the woman is considered a life, a person, but the fetus is not, at least not one of equal value with the woman. Now there are the problems with this argument. Uh, John Frame, who served on that OPC study committee so many years ago as the primary author, has done very helpful work on this subject of abortion, he argues that even if you were to grant this mis- miscarriage interpretation, that still would not justify abortion, points out, among other things, that you, you can't argue against the personhood of, the, of a fetus simply based on a particular fine which is imposed. There's more he says about that. But I believe the more powerful argument is simply to point out, as Frame rightly does point out, that this is not a miscarriage, but rather a live birth, which is in view in this text. In the Hebrew, there's no no suggestion of a miscarriage. The term here translated children is the very same term that we see used elsewhere to uh, refer to children who are already born. In fact, there are other Hebrew words which could rightly have been used or more appropriately been used if this were describing a stillbirth. So this is very probably a a situation involving premature birth. The baby comes out early. Verse 22 is saying that, that if that happens, but by God's mercy there is no harm, then a simple fine shall be imposed. In other words, both mother and baby happily survive. The only harm is the, the pain and the suffering caused by the, the premature birth. In that case, an appropriate fine payment arrangement, arrangement shall be determined by the husband and the, and the judges. But if there is harm, note this, if there is harm uh, to mother or to baby or to both, then shall apply the principle which we see in verses 23 through 25, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is what's known as lex talionis, right? To use the, the Latin term, lex talionis. The punishment must fit the crime. This was a, this was a principle which guarded against a rich person not really having to suffer for committing the crime of causing permanent bodily harm to another person, right? So if there were only one particular set monetary penalty or fine imposed for, say, putting out a person's eye, well, a rich person could go around poking out eyes all he wants and he can easily afford to, to pay the, the, the small fine and never really has to suffer for the crime he's committing. But if his punishment were to involve actually losing his own eye, well, obviously that would be very different, wouldn't it? Now, they were not really, uh, the idea wasn't that they would truly punish by removing eyes, although murderers were to be punished with capital punishment, life for life. Now, beyond that, this principle was not carried out and executed literally. But the point was, but by the just 
determination of the judges, the offender was to be made to suffer in a way that truly hurt in proportion to the crime which he had caused. But note how significant this, this was and is for the point before us this morning. This, this important lex talionis principle was what set, was set forth particularly with the life of the unborn in view. And this, by the way, is a clear instance of what we sometimes refer to as the general equity of the law, the moral law as it's applied to, uh, a different, different, uh, Civil realms. It was it was applied in a unique way to Israel, and it doesn't necessarily carry over into every single culture for every nation. But there are principles that clearly do carry over. We call that general equity. This applies even to all societies, even today. The babe in the womb was protected by God, protected by God's law, protected by the lex talionis principle, every bit as much as any other person. I for I. Let's not miss that point. The eye or the hand or the foot of that baby is is a human eye or hand or foot. Every much, every bit as much as is yours or mine, as is that precious beating heart. That life is a fully human person whose rights were to be protected The Lord was saying, if you take that life, you've taken a life of a person created in my image. You can't simply pay it off as if you're paying a simple fine, as if you've damaged some property. No, you pay with your own life. Again, why is this? Because life, every human life, is a person created in the image of God, and that includes the life in the womb. We know, of course, that, that Scripture everywhere bears this out. That's why David recognized that he was a person. He was a sinful person, but he was a person even in the womb. When he says in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. That's why Samuel's parents were told that he was to be a Nazarite from God from the womb, Judges chapter 13 Verse 5, and on and on and on. Again, Scripture bears this principle out everywhere. We'll look at more texts, but we'll do so as we move then on to our second point. Not only is the life in the womb the life of a fully human person, but secondly, it's a person whose life is particularly vulnerable, which only heightens the Lord's concern for that person and for that person's protection. God is concerned for all. Right? For all persons, all those made in his image, even the powerful and the wicked who oppress the weak and the innocent. Even when, as God's justice requires, he acts to, to strike them down in judgment because of their evil. The Bible tells us that he takes no pleasure in so doing. Concern for all but he has a special concern for those who are particularly vulnerable to such oppression, those who are the weak, the Bible describes as the weak, the needy, the poor, the helpless. We see this in the Psalms. I was going to have us read one of, or sing one of the Psalms for our beginning Psalm, but we'd, we'd sung them all so recently I decided not to. But think of Psalms uh, 72, verses 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity 
on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. And I ask you, do not the unborn fit into that category this morning? Frame, I think, puts it so well when he writes, arguably, the unborn are the weakest, poorest, most helpless people that there are. They have no political or economic strength, not even voices to plead their own cause. And they're under vicious attack today by the dominant forces of society, the educational establishment, the media and the government, including the courts, which should be demanding justice. Even the most influential ethical thought of modern society stands against them. And, Frame continues, the most terrible part of this is that these children are under attack even from their own mothers. What a sad thought that is. We think, of, think on that this morning. You know, the, truth of, the truth is we all know better, don't we? We know better. Even unbelievers know better than this. We all know that the life in the womb is not a sort of impersonal fetus, but a true human person. We could speak of the scientific evidence this morning, which is overwhelming. Overwhelming. Some of you may recall a few weeks back when we were... Uh, we studied in uh, Nancy Piercy's book in our adult Sunday school, and she points out that secular bioethicists all agree that life begins at conception. The evidence from DNA and genetics is way too strong to deny it. Any embryology textbook will confirm that. A fetus is biologically, physiologically, chromosomally, genetically human. So how do they get around it? But... They argue, you may recall, that it's a life, but not a person. Not until it reaches a certain level of cognitive development. A life, but not yet a person. That's why I've been intentionally using that word person this morning. Brothers and sisters, can we rejoice this morning that our God looked upon us in the womb and regarded us as a true person, a person created in his image, not on the basis of our cognitive development, right? Not on the basis of how much understanding we had, how much we knew. In the case of the, the prophet Jeremiah, the issue is not not whether Jeremiah had yet uh, developed cognitively enough to be able fully or sufficiently to know the Lord, to know God. No, as God, and even before God formed him in the womb, the Lord, we are told, the Lord knew him. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah chapter 1 Verse 5, known by God, in fact, known by God even before conception, but certainly, certainly counted as a true person in the womb where he was consecrated and set apart as a prophet of God. Cognitive development. Can you imagine if we thought that way among us this morning? Can you imagine if we were to think that way in comparison, say, the two-year-old among us with the 20-year-old among us, right? Uh, clearly, the two-year-old is not as developed cognitively and in any other way, and yet would we regard that two-year-old as less of a person? 
Scott Klusendorf, one of the great defenders of the pro-life position, excellent debater and very great, uh, uh, known for training others, suggests that you can effectively defend the pro-life position very simply, and I think these points are very helpful in just thinking about the position biblically, suggests that if you just remember four things, size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, SLED, size, level of development, environment, decree of dependency. Biblically, we don't base personhood on any of those four factors, do we? In fact, we just, we just spoke to the level of development and right, really it goes along with that, I think. Size. Shall we regard that toddler as less of a person than the 20 year old based on the person's size. And that's precisely the argument made by so many defenders of abortion, right? A tiny little cluster of cells. What are you, ridiculous? What are you, stupid? You're going to say that that tiny little cluster of cells is a true life, a true person, way too small. I would remind us that our Lord did not regard Zacchaeus that way, right? When because of his stature, he climbed up in that sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Our Lord came to him and regarded him, size notwithstanding, as a true person, albeit a lost person whom he, the Lord, had come to seek and to save. What about environment? That that means your location, right? Where are you? Your personhood is not dependent upon where you are located, not which city you are in, not which country you are in, and certainly not whether you're inside of the womb or whether you've come out of the womb, just a couple of feet removed, right? Our Lord became a a true person. If you think about it, it's wonderful to think about this. Our Lord became a true person, really, not by the, the miracle of the virgin birth, but by the miracle of the virgin conception, Recall what Mary was told in Luke 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Are we to believe that our Lord was something less than a person while in the womb? Of course not. Clearly, from conception onward, he was a true person, the true God-man the Messiah. What about dependence? Does does being dependent on one's mother make one less than a person? We're all we're all dependent, aren't we? We're dependent upon things outside of ourselves. Ultimately, we are dependent upon our God. In fact, this is not this doesn't make us less than a person. This is part of what it is to be truly a person. And that's certainly true, even in our, especially true, or seen in our infant state, pre-born and post-born. Think of the words of the psalmist, 22, verses 9 and 10. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you. There's beautiful dependence, dependence upon God. You made, you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Clearly, dependence is not a sound argument against personhood. And again, we know better than this. We, the whole, all of us, even unbelievers, we know better than to regard uh, the unborn as non 
persons based on those four factors or any other factor. In fact, those who, who, who do defend abortionally do so very inconsistently. There were some good examples of this being passed around in an email recently that I think were very helpful. There was an, an NPR interview just a few weeks back, and the guest was, was advocating for better prenatal care for minority women. She repeatedly referred to pregnant mothers and their babies, their babies, not fetuses, but their babies. She discussed her own pregnancy. Same thing, of course, always referred to that preborn child as my baby. Another great example, just a couple of weeks ago on the WNUC-FM morning show, Joe and Terry Graydon's The People's Pharmacy. The show was called Healthy Eating for Two. And the subtitle said, when expectant mothers are eating for two, following a Mediterranean diet and eating mindfully, benefit both mother and baby. The two doctors repeatedly referred to the pregnant mother's uh, preborn child as their baby. In fact, at one point, the one doctor proclaimed, this is a wonderful thing. You're creating a new life inside of you. It's just amazing how, how so many who speak that way, and you're creating a new life inside of you, are able to turn around and defend the mother's right to choose, to choose to end that life, and yet argue, oh, it's not murder. It's not murder. Or they will admit that it is murder and defend it anyway. It's not very often we, we, we uh, quote Chris Rock for our morning <laughs> sermons. But the famous comedian in his Netflix special earlier this month, so sadly, tragically, came out and said openly what we all know is true. It's murder. He said, I believe women should have the right to kill babies. That's right. I'm on your side. I believe you should have the right to kill as many babies as you want. Kill them all. I don't give a expletive, right? Let's just insert care. I don't give a care. Just think about those words. I don't give a care. Kill them all, he continued, trying to sound, I presume, virtuous when he said, but let's not get it twisted. It is killing a baby. How staggeringly tragic. Can you imagine those words? He's right in saying that it is killing, but to turn around then and defend it, let's not get it twisted. With all due respect, Mr. Rock, that is getting it altogether twisted. And friends, that's the kind of fallen, broken, depraved world in which we live, a world filled with sin, a world filled with murder. Their feet are swift to shed blood. How tragically we were reminded of that this past week, right, with the killing, uh, the tragic killing in Nashville. Well, Chris Rock may be unwilling to hear. He may not give a care, but God does give a care. God cares. God hears, and God calls us to do so as well. That brings us to our last point this morning. That as God's people, then he calls us, calls us to show Christ-centered concern for the life of the unborn. I thought about that term, Christ-centered. I was hesitant to use it because I think sometimes it's maybe overused. It may sound like a bit of a, 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 a buzzword in evangelical circles. But I do think that, that, that with this abortion issue, the pro-life cause is one about which we can get so zealous and fired up and we can do so in such a way that's not Christ-centered. 
where Christ and, and, and the gospel sort of fade into the background. For one thing, you can understand why that happens, because it is legitimate on this issue for us to stand together with unbelievers, to join our voices in a common cause of protecting the rights of the unborn. But I think it's so important for us as Christians to remember that as we do so, it's no less important, it's all the more important that we we do so looking to Christ in faith, seeing our, our great need of him, remembering that without him we are nothing and we can do nothing. It's good for us this morning, I think, to think about the abortion issue and then by way of application, say, what is God calling me to do? What shall I do about the evil of abortion in this world? I do believe that we are all called to be concerned and involved, at least prayerfully involved. If you and I are not as part of our prayers, if we're never praying regarding the evil of abortion, I think this is this would be a week in which we should put that right. Put that right. How could we not be concerned? How could we not be prayerfully involved when a million babies are being slaughtered every year? How could we not be concerned and moved to pray? And for some, of course, God is calling us to even greater involvement than that. This will be a a week in which we have opportunity to hear about opportunities to serve in this regard. We have no interest this morning or this week in shaming people into service. I appreciate the fact that, that love life doesn't take that approach. But as we think about the call to prayer, a call to prayer and action where God calls us to act, Christ-centered prayer, Christ-centered action. What should that look like? I was, I was thinking about that this past week, and I called to mind the, the words of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 9, where we read in verses 3 and 4 about the man clothed in linen, arguably the, the, the pre-incarnate son of God. And he's told to pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and to put a mark on the foreheads of the men, which men are marked? On the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are caused or that are committed in the city. Who sigh and groan. There's, there's the description of the remnant whom the Lord is preserving as the vast majority. The covenant nation is forsaking it, the Lord, turning away from him in rebellion and giving themselves over to committing such abominations. The faithful the remnant, they sigh, they groan. Is that not just exactly, at least in part, what we are called to be and called to do as Christians? Those who sigh and groan over the evil we see in society, evils like the evil of abortion. Shall we not mourn? Shall we not plead the mercy of God for the sake, yes, for the sake of the unborn, more than that, for the sake of the honor and the glory of the God in whose image They were created, and I would say it should move us, move us with humility and repentance, move us unto brokenness over our own sin. You know, we can become so indignant over the evil of abortion while while forgetting that, that, that but for the grace of God, we would be committing those very same sins ourselves. We are by, by nature very, or every bit as, as wicked as those who defend and promote and even commit the sin of abortion. Yes, let us sigh 
and groan over the, the abominations which we see committed in the city, as it were, but not without doing so over those very same sins as we see ourselves committing them, even in our own hearts. And I think that should move us. That should move us to proper humility as we engage in in pro-life ministry and in every other way the Lord calls us to live out our faith this day. certainly going to help us in terms of helping us better uh, be able to understand and, and to be able to interact in a loving way with the lost world, in a loving way with, with women who might be in such terrible circumstances. They're actually considering committing this horrible, uh, evil act, better understanding, help us to better understand the difficulty of the situation. Not, of course, not that it ever justifies murder, but we will better minister to them if we true, uh, show true love and concern for them as persons, just as we're concerned for those precious babes in the womb. Love, true concern, prayer-filled concern, which flows out of humility and out of hope. We mourn, but we mourn not as those who have no hope to be, to, 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 to be concerned with Christ-centered concerns means that we have hope because we do so in faith, and we have a gospel of a Savior whose grace is amazing grace. I was thinking about all of the places in the scripture we could describe that. We sung about it this morning, the sufferings of Christ. Think about his words in Psalm 22, verse 6. If there was ever one who understood what it was like to be oppressed, one who understood what it was like to, to cry out and no one hears the cry. Think of that Psalm 22. My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? But it says in verse 6, But I am a, a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Was there anyone who ever understood what it was like to be counted as less than a person? I'm not a man. I'm a worm. Christ understood. Christ came into this world. Christ was given over to the worst imaginable suffering. He became the supreme victim. And his grace to us is marvelous. And I would simply remind us in closing this morning that by God's grace, by the grace of Christ, some of the very greatest servants of the Lord were murderers, weren't they? We think back to Moses, right? What did he do to the man back in Egypt? He, he killed him. Or David, what did he do to Uriah the Hittite? And look how the Lord used him as the king of Israel. Think of what Saul of Tarsus had done before he became Paul the apostle, right? He was involved in having Christians put to death for, for serving Christ. He persecuted the church. He persecuted Christ murderously. And just look how God saved him and God used him. No wonder uh, we have such a marvelous testimony from his own lips or from his writing. First Timothy 1, 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. May that always be our testimony. May it be our deep conviction and our hope. Let that encourage us. Let that certainly encourage us this week and always as we give ourselves to praying for the unborn, praying those involved in pro-life ministry, and praying even for those on the other side of this debate. Let us pray. 
Let us labor in every way that the Lord gifts us, enables us, and calls us. Let us do so in hope that our gracious God will work even through this great evil of abortion. The Lord is working, and he will advance the gospel because it is a gospel of life by grace through faith, life because of the death, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, grace, salvation, life, eternal life through Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we we praise you for that life. We do indeed love life. We love you, O God, for the life that you have given to us. We bless you for that eternal life which has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Father, we want indeed in every way to be faithful followers of him in the way we think, in the way we act with respect to this great evil of abortion. So, Father, come to us, we pray, and be our help and our guide. We do pray for the unborn this morning. We ask, O God, that you would be pleased to rescue and save them and save those who are in bondage to the sin. Father, we're pleading with you that you would bring an end to abortion and that you would do so as you would bring many who are dead in their sins unto life and salvation in Jesus Christ. Help us in our involvement with love life and in all that we do, all of our days to walk before you rightly on the path of life in him who is the way and the truth and the life, even our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.